Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, ideas and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm joining you during a very eventful week. We have seen a major terrorist attack in Berlin, the Russian ambassador to Turkey shot by a policeman and two other stories which we're going to be talking about now. First, the end of the slow and painful siege in Aleppo and a massive political crisis in Poland. First up, we will talk about the Syrian situation and I'm joined by Julian Barnes-Dacey, who is the head of the ECFR's Middle East and North Africa programme and our lead analyst on Syria. Anthony Dworkin, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR and an expert on terrorism and the laws of war. And finally, by Kadri Leek from our wider Europe program, who is an expert on Russia and has written extensively on Russia's involvement in Syria and the Middle East more generally. So, Julian, why don't you start by telling us what the, the latest situation in Aleppo is and what you think the implications are for the future of, of Syria and for this heart-wrenching civil war? Sure. Well, I mean, it, it, it seems that, that, that after several years now, the, the Assad government with strong Russian and Iranian backing is effectively on the verge of, of retaking control of all of uh, the city of Aleppo. The rebels have long controlled eastern Aleppo. Um, and it's been really a key battleground for, for the fate of, of, of the ongoing civil war over recent months. Um, with this victory, it really seems that the, 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 the Assad regime has secured a much larger strategic victory over, over the wider conflict. It's going to be a long while yet before uh, there's any sense of national control and there are still strong pockets of, of, of opposition to Assad in the north of the country. You have a Turkish-backed zone, you have ISIS uh, still controlling large parts of the east of the country and so on and so forth. But this um, gives the regime control over over the largest uh, urban center in in the country. It gives the Syrian regime effective control of all of course Syria. So the strip of territory running from Damascus up into Aleppo, which incorporates all of of the core key cities. And really, it's it, it, it's the end of the opposition as a strategic threat to the regime. There is now real really no sense that that, that Assad is on the ropes. That the question of transition is on the cards any longer. And so now we're really adapting to this new reality where people are thinking, how do you manage uh, Assad's survival? How do you, you move forward in that light? You've seen talks in Moscow yesterday between the Iranians, the Russians and uh, the Turks trying, trying to plod a, a way forward. But it's very notable that the West, uh, the Europeans, the Americans and even the opposition at large are no longer really part of that conversation. Wow. So, Kadri, you, you've been looking at it from the, the Russian side. What do they think the, the future of uh, Syria now holds? Well, Russia's aim has always been to restore Assad's control over country. And to the extent they have been talking of, of any potential transition, uh, that has never been a precondition for settlement for them. They have been very much against seeing it that way. Uh, now, I think the question is, to what extent are Russians willing to help Assad's quest for further control of the country? Are they going to help him with additional troops and so forth? 
because the regime's hold of the territory is still fragile, as uh, events in Palmyra recently so well demonstrated. Or will Russia now invest more in negotiated settlement? Uh, I think it's a sort of trade-off for them, because they have been escalating so far, trying to get more favorable terms for settlement. And now the point of debate is whether they think that they have got what they could get, or uh, is there more to be gained by, by military action? And of course, there is some, I think there must be some contradictory forces in Moscow. Uh, maybe the military's instinct is to continue. Uh, some other people's instinct is, of course, to remember about Afghanistan and try to take care not to get too deep into, into Syria so that it becomes hard to get out. But presumably the, the big bookend to this process is, is Trump becoming president, which is still a few weeks off. So is that the idea to get into as strong a position as possible and then try and do a, a deal that consolidates these gains with Trump? Uh, I think Russia was trying to get into stronger uh, position preparing for Hillary presidency, because my impression is that Russians, even though they might have helped Trump, they didn't really think that he would win. That was quite evident uh, from Valdai meeting in late October, where everyone was crazy. That's the meeting of the Russian elite, which you went to with, with Vladimir Putin hosts every year. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and you could see that Moscow was praising itself for Hillary presidency, which they expected to be very harsh vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So my understanding has been that the assault on Aleppo was motivated by, on the one hand, sense of betrayal. Russians seemed to think that America was trying to cheat on them and wasn't sticking to what had been agreed between Kerry and Lavrov. And that is something Putin doesn't forgive that easily. And then they decided that, OK, then we will not invest in negotiations with Obama administration anymore. Instead, we will try to gain crown so that next negotiations will start from a new place. Um, I think with Trump, things are, of course, easier for Russians. So I don't think that demonstration, of course, is even so necessary if uh, Trump really comes around to Russia's vision of the situation and, and solution, as Russians hope. I, I don't think we know for certain what Trump position uh, and its nuances will be. But basically, Russians think, I guess they think that it will be easier for them than it would have been with Hillary. So we've kind of looked at two angles, which is one, the, the kind of situation in Syria and its impact on the, the regional dynamics. We, with Kadri, we've been looking at, at Russia, which I suppose takes it into a kind of global geopolitical sphere. But there is a kind of even more fundamental battle being waged on, on the grounds in Syria, which is about the, the whole rules of international relations. Anthony, how does the fall of Aleppo play into the normative world order? Well, I'm tempted to ask what normative world order, because there's no doubt that, that I mean, the fall of Aleppo in a way kind of crystallizes a lot of um, feelings that people have you know, increasingly had about the, the Syrian war over the course of the conflict. And to my mind, there's no doubt that the you know, the Syrian crisis, the increasing brutality with which the Assad regime and its Russian backers have waged the conflict 
and you know the effective inability of of the West or the outside world to to do anything about this. Overall, it's the gravest crisis for the kind of humanitarian system that a lot of people hoped that they'd set up um, in the post-Cold War period of the 1990s. I mean, that system had effectively two pillars, um, one of which was a prevent pillar, formalized in this notion of a responsibility to protect people um, against uh, war crimes and mass atrocities. And the other pillar was the notion that we would punish those responsible through um, this new regime of international justice that was set up, centered around the International Criminal Court. And, you know, the Syrian conflict um, has been uh, kind of, um, you know, it's, a, it's been a kind of textbook of, an, of the number of war crimes that you can commit, um, the use of chemical weapons, um, deliberate attacks on civilian populations, reprisal killings, uh, indiscriminate bombardment with barrel bombs, um, and, you know, clearly, uh, abuse, torture, and killing of people who've been captured. And, you know, yet there's really been very little that, um, the Western powers or others have been able to do about it. And equally, I think it's hard to see any realistic prospect of anyone being punished um, or held accountable for it. Um, and, you know, as Julian and Kadri have both been saying, we're now looking at a, a settlement which is, you know, probably not going to restore the Assad regime's complete control of the country, but there's no doubt that they are going to be the political victors and that the opposition is now um, probably going to devolve into a kind of insurgency in which, um, you know, violent extremist groups are likely to have the upper hand. Um, and so I think, you know, it really forces us to reflect on the fact that these kind of normative systems that we thought were maybe going to be a, a kind of pillars of the, of the new order are politically contingent. You know, we probably should have recognized that all along. I mean, these are things which, which kind of are, you know, dependent on support of a particular political alignment. And when that's not there, they can't drive events. Yeah, so I, I I want to go back to to the what's happening on the ground in Syria and to talk again to to Julian and and also to Kadri about some of this this Moscow declaration and what we hope will come out of that. But maybe I can just ask you on a personal level, Anthony, because you've been so deeply involved in all these debates for many years. When I remember, when was it? It almost probably almost two decades ago that you set up an NGO on on crimes of war, and you know you you were very involved in all of these debates after the, I, I suppose, the high point of, of uh, humanitarian intervention when Kosovo happened in, in 1999. Um, you know, what do you think the future of these things are? Is this a temporary setback or is this just, uh, was it just a moment, a humanitarian moment in the 90s? Yeah, well, in fact, I've been mulling those <laughs> cheerful issues over in the last week um, and trying to pull together some thoughts on them. And you know, I think it, it was a very different world when these things were set up. I mean, they were set up in the aftermath of the war in Bosnia and the genocide in Rwanda. And, you know, at that point, the, the failure to stop what was happening seemed like a failure of political will or a failure to recognize the kind of, you know, ability or the likelihood of terrible things happening. 
Um, and that's not what's happened in Syria. You know, this wasn't a, a kind of failure of our humanity or a failure of our political will. Um, you know, Western governments have been watching Syria and wringing their hands and looking desperately for something to do. So, you know, I think um, there are probably going to be now some postmortems looking back and thinking, could we have done anything different? Um, you know, if we'd known that all these terrible things were going to happen anyway, should we have tried a different approach? Um, but, you know, my instinct is not to think that. I, I still don't see anything else that could have been done. And so I think, um, you know, our our hopes for this kind of more normative order are challenged. You know, I think these things will persist. I think the International Criminal Court will will still be there, but it'll be more of a kind of voluntary institution that states join. Um, and so there'll be a kind of partial normative order in which, the, you know, those states who buy into the system, it regulates them. But there'll be a part of the world that I think for the foreseeable future is going to be outside that. And, you know, it's I think we have to be realistic and admit that. Uh, otherwise, we're going to set goals that are unattainable and, you know, it'll look increasingly um, increasingly empty. So I think retrenchment is the order of the day for these humanitarian goals and, you know, um, retrench and, and persist. So, Julie, maybe I can ask you a personal question as well. I mean, you're, you're somebody who's spent a lot of time in Syria. You've lived in Syria. You've been pushing for a... Uh, political solution, uh, de-escalation, argued that we should deal with uh, the reality as it is and not have illusions about Assad's imminent departure um, for a long time. I mean, you must have also thought uh, a lot about whether one could have done something different. I mean, you know, watching those images and seeing these kind of horrendous crimes in Aleppo, um, I think has led to a, a huge amount of soul searching around the world. I mean, w w where are you at in terms of your own thinking about what could have uh, happened differently? I mean, I, I think as, as one looks at the, the kind of the sheer horror and devastation and, and, and suffering, most of all of Syrians, it's impossible um, not to think that there isn't, you know, that, that, that one could not have done a lot more um to, to to help syrians to try and alleviate the situation and i think you know the, the knee-jerk reaction is obviously to think well what one should have intervened and and there, there may have been a military response and i mean even now i i, I struggle to 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 see the logic of that given the, the kind of the all-in commitment of of the likes of the iranians and the russians and, and the sense that assad was always I'm very open about the fact that, that, that any fight against him would necessitate burning down the country. But that doesn't mean that, that, that a lot more couldn't have been done in terms of both the nature of, of, of political engagement, in terms of the humanitarian support, in terms of, of frankly, the attention that had been given to this crisis by European leaders. I mean, I think that, that, that foreign ministries and, uh, and so forth have been focused on it. But I think that has been a broader lack of, of, of political commitment uh, to trying to address this this, um, this crisis from 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 the top down, and I think increasingly Syria has only been seen as a problem in, in some in as much as it it, it, it plays off domestic politics. Um, but the extent to which uh, national European leaders have put this at the top of their agenda, 
um, have engaged with uh, regional players, with the UN, with the American administration, the top level in terms of prioritizing this, prioritizing a track that would try and reduce some of the civilian suffering. I don't think that's been there. And that's where my real, you know, the sense, the, the sense of failure strikes me more, that, that, that a lot more could have been done. And one can go back and say, well, Assad, you know, the, the West should not have called for Assad to go so quickly, given that they weren't going to enforce that. We shouldn't have encouraged the rebels down a track. One should have intervened militarily. I mean, all of these are hypotheticals that really don't leave, don't give a clear sense that the situation would have necessarily been better. But in terms of the political and humanitarian investment, I think a lot more could have been done. So what happens next? What do you think? Well, I, 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 I think now this is about um, internalizing, responding and, and, and charting a, a, a best way through this reality that Assad is not going anywhere. And I think the priority now has to be how do you salvage something? For the sake of, of 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 the Syrian people that have suffered so desperately, and I think politics and the desire to to, to stand. So you've that. been arguing for a while, Julian, that the future is some kind of uh, decentralization uh, of power, not necessarily breaking up the country formally, but having much more local control in different areas. Is that? How I mean, how's that affected by the resurgence of the Assad regime? And I mean, they must be feeling all conquering at the moment. To a certain extent, yes. And the big question is whether Russia in particular is going to look to, to, to pull back the Assad regime along some of the lines that Kadri suggested. Is this a time to, to, to pivot to a political track? I mean, it's very interesting that the, the Assad regime just a year ago was would have been willing and, and, and laid on the table an acceptance of some kind of proposal that would have given rebels greater autonomy in eastern Aleppo. Today that wasn't an offer or, or in the recent months that, that was no longer an offer that they were willing to accept. They saw military military victory being a possibility and they wanted to push on with with that track. So I think it's increasingly much more difficult now to to see where the regime is going to give in terms of this idea of devolution, decentralization, a track that might perhaps have had more life and possibility just a year ago than it is today. And so much is dependent on, on what the Russians and the Iranians are, are prepared to extract out of Assad. I mean, I think that there's a reality that the regime will never rule like it like it did before. It doesn't have the resources, the capability to implement, to enforce itself in the rule of Syria. And even in these pockets that, it, that it's recaptured, it's going to have to give, it's going to have to allow a, a degree of local autonomy and then you have zones like the Turkish zone in the north, Jordanian zone in the south. I mean these are areas that the regime cannot retake anytime soon. The question is whether it's going to try and use that as a basis of some kind of political deal, whether it's going to recognize that it has to uh, reconcile itself with the broader population that that, that, that is under its rule. Whether it's going to try and rule by by the sword in, in a longer term, more progressive fashion that allows no room for for any breathing space for the Syrian people, I think really so much now depends on on what's happening in Moscow in these talks. I mean, Assad is to a certain extent a, 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 a hostage of, of of these external players who have supported him, but yet of course he's also able to to, to drive the agenda forward by his his actions on the ground, and, and he has a certain hold over his own backers. So it, it's very uncertain and it's hard to, to kind of chart a way out that, that, that says, look, we can we can map out a political devolution path that, that, that creates some kind of balance of power. In okay. the long term, there has to be an agreement, though, and there has to be some kind of power sharing because 
If not, the country will continue to implode. It's not sustainable in the, in, in the current track. Okay, well, last word to you, Kadri. How, how do you think, um, uh, how do you see things moving forward? And, and what do you think um, the meaning of this Moscow declaration, a uh, uh, post-American Middle East um, uh, uh, actually is? Yeah, I'm, that worries me actually quite a lot, that the West has by now become completely sidelined from, from the decision-making in, in the Middle East. And in many ways, it has been Moscow's aspiration not to sideline us, but to um, impose its own views of how to handle the situation on us. For Moscow, um, support to Assad has always been also about world order questions, and namely um, about support to the regimes. Russia is very much against color revolution or any sort of popular overthrow of the regime. Um, and that's actually why uh, the next year, uh, 2017, is going to be very hard for Moscow because that's when they celebrate their own revolution anniversary. But that was a side remark. Um, so now they have managed that in, in the Middle East. They have um, basically imposed their terms of settlement on that grand scale, no popular overthrow of the regime. But what to do next and who to do it with um, that is probably a lot more complicated question. Um, I haven't heard uh, enough about the Moscow meeting between Iran, Turkey and, and Russia to um, make proper sense as to what might come of it. My sense is that at one point Moscow will still need to rely on, on Western support if they want to have sustainable settlement. Um, and, and there they will need to hope that Trump will not mind uh, uh, the extent to which they have um, undercut all Western views and positions on, on how to deal with Syria, and then that he's still willing to help them. Okay, well, thank you very much to all of you for a really, really interesting discussion on incredibly difficult subject matter, not just on a human level, but also it raises so many big questions about the future shape of the world and its geopolitics. And um, I'm sure we're going to be coming back very regularly to, to this uh, topic again with all three of you. So that brings the first discussion to an end. And now we're going to talk about Poland and are joined from Warsaw by Piotr Baras, who is the head of ECFR's office in Warsaw and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. So, Piotr, um, why don't you tell us what's happening in Poland? You know, I think against the background of the other events you mentioned, uh, this crisis in Poland looks like a rather minor event. But indeed, we are facing a uh, massive escalation of the political conflict we have witnessed in Poland over the last 12 months, uh, with uh, demonstrations before the building um, of the Polish parliament, with uh, some big a spat between the opposition and um, the government, and the and the the new uh, chapter of this political conflict was provoked by a rather one would say on the surface rather meaningless minor events. Uh, one of the uh, MPs of the opposition was excluded from the parliamentary session uh, without any serious reason, which. Um, 
provoked uh, protests of the opposition. Uh, then um, citizens of Warsaw um, gathered before the building of the parliament. They blocked uh, the gates of the parliament, not letting the um, representatives of the ruling party leave the parliament. And uh, under these very particular circumstances, um, where the uh, main hall of the of the parliament was blocked by the opposition, the ruling uh, party, the majority of the in the parliament uh, of the ruling party, adopted the new uh, budget law. Uh, under, um, as I said, very particular circumstances and with as many um, uh, commentators and especially um, leaders of the opposition maintain um, in a way which was not in line with the standard parliamentary procedures uh, where the statute of the parliament was uh, violated. And uh, it means that um, at the moment we are facing a situation where the new budget law is recognized um, only by the um, parliamentary majority, by the ruling party, and while the opposition maintains that this uh, most important bill is illegal and the voting uh, should be resumed. So what were that just before we go into the consequences, can you just lay out a bit more why they're saying it's illegal? Uh, was it because it was in an, a room which wasn't the main parliament building or were there other reasons for that? That was, uh, the, the room is in the in the main parliament building uh, and, and the fact that this voting took place not in the main hall but in a separate, in another room, uh, it's it's not a big deal actually because it's it is legal, it can happen. But the opposition maintains that some of the um, uh, opposition politicians were not allowed to enter this room, that were blocked and uh, couldn't thus participate in the in the voting. Uh, in fact, uh, no uh, representatives of the opposition, apart from two, uh, participate in this um, um, in the voting. Uh, then uh, some important rules, uh, internal rules of the of the parliament, were violated. For example, that some corrections which the opposition wanted to make make to the to the budget law were voted in blocks not uh, one after another which is um, um, it seems like a minor thing but in fact uh, it's a, it's a clear violation of the of the statute of the parliament uh, and also, the, it's and maybe most importantly, it's not certain if there was a quorum in the room, because the Speaker of the Parliament uh, decided not to count the votes, I mean, before the voting started. So it's not certain how many parliamentarians, uh, MPs, uh, in fact, uh, were in the room while, when at the moment when the voting started. And some people say there were also some... Uh, non-parliamentarians in the room. Uh, so this it looks like a real mess. And apart from that, the, the media were also prevented from entering the room. There were only two or three cameras which didn't show the whole picture. So there is no way basically to prove what was the situation in the room, who voted how, and if there was a quorum uh, at all. So this is... So that was, I, this I, all I, happened on... The early hours of Saturday morning. That it happened actually on Friday night. Uh, yes, on Friday night. Um, and uh, so, what happened after this, the after that? Because that's the kind of original sin. But what's happened since then? 
You know, since then, uh, basically, there the, the, the was an attempt to um, uh, forge a compromise between the opposition and the government undertaken by, by the President Duda. Uh, but in fact, uh, Mr. Kaczynski, the leader of the of the ruling party, um, uh, decided not to uh, make any concessions. So uh, on this most important issue, which is the, the budget law, it made concessions uh, on uh, on another issue, which I haven't mentioned yet, which was also very important. That was the the question of. Uh, of a new uh, regulation uh, concerning the media access to the parliamentary uh, building and to the, in fact, to the to the uh, to the parliament, uh, um, the the law which which was proposed initially by the Law and Justice um, limited the access of journalists to the parliament in a very considerable way, and after the protests of the opposition, but also after the protests in the streets, in, in after the demonstration in front of the parliament's building, uh, Law and Justice decided to withdraw this uh, bill proposal. The the whole discussion about it has been deferred until uh, January. And uh, as it seems, uh, the the party will not introduce the most controversial controversial points of this um, of this bill. So, so, so what happens this, next? What happens next? I mean, we have. Uh, I think, in fact, uh, to be honest, nobody knows because we have a very. Uh, it will be probably a very protracted, prolonged political crisis, um, as long as uh, we don't have a compromise on the budget law. Because uh, in a situation where the opposition uh, perceives this uh, new budget as illegal, I mean, adopted in a legal way, and the, and the party, the ruling party, maintains that everything was fine, uh, it will be very difficult to for also for the government to sorry for the for the parliament to uh, resume its work after the christmas break so how uh, how's the public reacting to this because poland has been this very divided country uh, you know between 30 and 40% of the public are strong support of of the law and justice party uh, a lot of people are uh, are opposed to it but they still remain uh, quite popular so far and have introduced a lot of measures that people like i mean how is this changing how people see the government? You know, some people say it would be a game changer and that this is the, the end of the, the beginning of the end of the uh, of law and justice in power. But I think it's vastly exaggerated. Uh, the fact is that, uh, of course, there were there were demonstrations against um, how many people were the, demonstrating? Oh, there were thousands, maybe, but but not that much. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, it's it's not that much. I mean, there were protests also in other uh, cities, in Krakow, in in uh, Gdansk. The liberal but, elite. Uh, but this is uh, at the moment rather liberal elite. So it's um, I wouldn't say that there is a massive protest against the government um, as a consequence of of all these developments. But the fact is that. The impression is, uh, I think, both in the elites and the, in the society, that the things are getting out of control. That it's not that you know this, the, the the new escalation of the conflict had been planned by the government or or by the opposition. It was it was just an incident which provoked the whole um, 
mess and uh, the uh, the ruling party also did not um, foresee all these developments and i think it, the whole uh, situation un does undermine uh, the foundations of, of law and justice power because it shows that uh, the party doesn't uh, have full control of the situation and also of uh, its own uh, ranks. But does it not uh, also feed into one of Kaczynski's favourite ideas? I, I think I learned from you that one of his favourite slogans is the idea of impossibilism, the fact that you can't get anything done because the parliament, the judiciary, people get in the way of, of delivering yes. on the And this is kind of perfect example of impossibilism, isn't it? Yes, and I, and I think it's it's you know it, it, as I said, I, I generally believe that it had not been planned by the by the government, uh, but I think it's it it is part of of the strategy of ruling by chaos, and and this is a, a quite a you know a useful situation where the where the um, uh, both the constitutional court is now um, effectively blocked or or completely. Um, not able to, to to act, and now the parliament is a state of chaos. So it's, but but I think, and this is uh, this is why I believe that the, the the picture is quite ambiguous. That it can play uh, in favor of the government, but uh, it can also uh, play against the government. Uh, because the consequences of the of the chaos which we will be facing um, in the upcoming weeks and months are unpredictable. And why is the, the chaos also... going to last for weeks and months? I mean, how does this crisis get resolved? I mean, the, uh, in fact, we have two crises, and the one crisis around the parliament, uh, which I have described, the, the the issue of the budget law, and there is no compromise in sight, so uh, it will, uh, it might block the parliament for for some time. So does the government get to just spend last year's budget until a new budget is passed, or what happens? There's not going to be a government shutdown like in the U.S. No, it it could be. I mean, there is a there is a. Um, According to the Polish Constitution, the president can uh, dissolve the parliament in case the the budget is not adopted until the end of the year. But of course, it will. I mean, according at least according to the, it will be adopted uh, um, at least uh, in the view of the of the of the government. Uh, and I, I assume pres the president will will accept it. But it will certainly exacerbate the, the political crisis and um, with with very negative consequences, for example, for, for Poland's image in the world and especially in the uh, in the financial elites and in, in the markets. At the moment, uh, the situation is stable. Zloty has not been weakened, but but I think it's, it's um, just a matter of time, especially. OK, so uh, that's one crisis. And what's the other one? And the, the other one is still around the constitutional court, because here we have a new a new reality with the new interim president of the court, because Mr. Zepliński, the former president, stepped down yesterday. His term came to an end. And, and we have a new regulations concerning how the constitutional court functions. But uh, we have a um, we will have a big problem in the upcoming weeks and months because uh, it is a very unclear legal um, situation. Um, the verdicts of the um, constitutional court issued this year, which are not recognized by the government, but which may be uh, recognized by the courts. Okay, just the 
and so uh, we we, ha- we will probably have two legal standards or two two legal systems in, in Poland with, with all um, very negative consequences for, for not only for the society but also for the for the economic sector. So one of the things that has been a feature of this new. Uh, political era in Poland has been uh, the European Union passing judgment periodically on, on whether uh, it feels that things that Poland's doing are in, in line with the Copenhagen criteria on democracy and the rule of law or not. Has there been any comments um, since this latest crisis erupted? And are those things generally helpful uh, for supporters of the rule of law in Poland or do they tend to, to strengthen the government? I think uh, uh, this is uh, this is certainly important for those who support the rule of law in Poland that uh, the European public opinion the re- European authorities um, European leaders or the European Commission uh, support you know this uh, way of thinking which is criticizing uh, the Polish government for violating the Polish constitution because this is at the core of the whole disagreement the violation of the Polish constitution not just abstract uh, idea of uh, of rule of law um, so this is certainly this uh, the support is important uh, but I think uh, we are entering a new phase in this um, disagreement uh, between the Polish uh, government and the European Commission over the rule of law in Poland, because the European Commission's role um, maybe has not yet expired, but uh, it's coming, uh, this rule of law mechanism is coming to an end. Uh, um, Perhaps the Commission will issue uh, some other rec- new recommendations, but uh, but it will be less and less important. I think what is becoming the, the issue is becoming more and more political, because uh, it, it's not just about the legality of some measures undertaken by the Polish government. It is uh, more and more about the whole direction in which the Polish political system is going, because there are some. Uh, steps, some measures uh, undertaken by the government, which are not uh, entirely illegal or or clearly illegal, but they all taken together, uh, they boil down to a uh, certain tendency of hollowing out the foundations of the liberal democracy. and uh, and I think this is what should be at stake at the moment in in the whole political debate about about Poland and and the prospects of the Polish democracy, because we uh, we shouldn't so much focus on the uh, only on the legality of certain measures, but we should uh, analyze more broadly where the um, the whole development is going uh, and and I think here is where, where I have uh, where I'm quite worried that that we can even under the threshold of uh, constitutional legality some um, measures are adopted which uh, which are quite uh, dangerous when it comes to the standards of liberal democracy. Okay, well, we will come back to you as this crisis develops. It's not the the first or probably the last time that we're going to talk about these trends. Thanks a lot, Piotr, for uh, explaining what's going on and what the stakes are. And uh, good luck to, to you as this crisis continues unfolding. So we have one more thing to do on this podcast, which is to talk about our bookshelf segment. 
Um, Anthony, you're a big reader. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I guess uh, appropriately for this war-dominated conversation, I've been reading uh, a book by uh, an American uh, lawyer and analyst, Rosa Brooks, and it's called How Everything Became War. And it's basically about the blurring. Is it, is there not another half, isn't it? How everything became war and war became everything. Uh, yeah, I was giving you the shorter version. It's how <laughs> how everything became how everything became war and how the military became everything. Oh, okay. And it is about the the blurring of the line between war and peace. How um, you know there are no boundaries to the wars that the West is fighting today against terrorists and. Uh, so on. We don't know whether cyber things are war or not. And at the same time, we're getting the military to do more and more. And what's interesting about the, not only the subject matter, but also Rosa's perspective from, a, you know, she came from a book, is not kind of classic left-wing American family and has worked with a lot of NGOs of the sort that they're all familiar with. Um, and yet she also worked in the Pentagon and in fact is now married to uh, a serving military officer in the U.S., so it's a kind of a reluctant peaceniks view of from the inside of, of the military and the demands and expectations on it. So uh, it's written in a pretty engaging way, given the, the kind of you know slightly gloomy nature of some of the subject matter. Wow. What about you, Kadri? Well, I have assembled um, half a meter of books on the future of the world order uh, because I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen to us. And that, in a way, has direct link to my um, Russia field. Everyone, each time when asked, how can, we, how can we influence Russia and Ukraine, Syria, things like that, increasingly, I feel that in order to make Russia take us seriously, we need to demonstrate that our version of the future of the world has to be taken seriously. But the liberal world order still still has a future and, and is something to be reckoned with. Because increasingly I see that Russians do not believe in it. And by now they seem to think they have been right all along. And the West was living in some sort of liberal delusions and, and has to give them up. So, so what, what uh, are the high, have you, do you want to name some books though? Because some people might want to join you in your journey, Kadri. Yeah, well, uh, the top of my pile is Henry Kissinger's uh, volume on World Order. But there are a few others by Philip Bobbitt, Bob Gagan, and so forth. And if anyone wants to recommend, I, I'd be most grateful. So please, my email is pretty public on ECFR website, so please send me recommendations. Wonderful. So, Julian, you're next, aren't you? I'm, I'm next. I'm, I'm, I fear I don't have much to add and I'll be shown up by my, my better read colleagues. I'm, um, unfortunately, uh, between, between what's happening in the news and my Twitter feed, my, my, my reading has, has not been very substantial of late. Um, in terms of understanding the world order, I probably lean more to a quick perusal of, of, of Calvin and Hobbes, um, rather than anything more meaty, unfortunately. So my own reading has been Stranding Two Worlds. I've both been living in Kadri's uncertain world, which is collapsing and trying to get to grips with that, but also uh, trying to work out 
how to deal with massive organizational change as we enter a post-fact world where nobody cares what experts think anymore and where Britain is leaving the European Union. What does that mean for a think tank like ECFR? So on the first topic, one of the books that made me think a lot was a book called Freedom Rising by Christian Welzer, who looks at this big shift in the values of societies as people get better educated and satisfy their material conditions. They go from having a, a lifestyle that's focused on survival and on traditional and religious values towards looking for self-expression and freedom and emancipatory values and uh, rational secular values. And that is a progression which many countries have gone down. And as large numbers of the population go towards these newer, more emancipatory values, that creates a massive cultural chasm. And that's what explains the election of Donald Trump and Brexit, but also the big conservative turn in Russia and, and many other countries. And I think is one of the underlying uh, causes of this collapse in world order that Kadri's talking about. When it comes to organisations, I'm afraid most of the books are much less uh, readable. But there is one book that stands out um, for its helpfulness in dealing with a really difficult situation like this. And it's called Praising Change, which seems appropriate for a world where almost everything is changing. And that is a, a book by Ian Clarkson, who is uh, founder and CEO of Celerant, which is a, a boutique uh, consultancy uh, which helps organisations not just think about how to deal with massive changes, but to implement them as well. So that brings this week's podcast to an end. If you've enjoyed it, please do give us a review or a ranking on iTunes or SoundCloud, Mixcloud, Stitcher, whatever platform it is that you're using to, to listen to us. If you have any comments or suggestions for books for us to read on World Order, write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Anthony Dworkin, Julian Barnes-Dacey, Kadri Leek, Piotr Barras, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrika Franke, and our editor is Boline Goemin. <laughs>